This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie removed from frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting for the real thing to start. Hello, and welcome to The Real Thing. I'm your host, Joe Lawrence, and here we are, episode two. Let's go. I'm very excited to be here again doing this podcast. For those of you joining from last episode, so happy to have you back. For those of you just joining, also very glad that you're here. Strange for you to start on this second episode, but nonetheless, I'm glad to have you. This podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club, which is an independent cinema at the heart of Bergen, Norway. The film club's main goal is giving a voice to those who deserve it, revealing insights into unknown cultures, and showing awesome movies. In this podcast, I talk about the films included in the film club's extensive program of films, and this episode, we got a doozy of a film. I am very looking forward to it. Today, we're talking about horror films, which I am buzzed about because I love horror films. I'm a very big fan of all of them, the good and the bad. Show me any of them, I'll probably like it. But I don't want to deter you. I know that it's a scary thing, but nothing scary is going to happen today. This is a safe space. Just just a guy, two guys talking about blood, guts, gore, killing, all of that good stuff. We have a really good guest today, which I'm excited about. We had a really great conversation about gore and, like I said, wet blood and the use of that in horror films, and whether it's all worth it. So, definitely I'm excited for for you guys to hear that, I suppose. It was a really good interview. You see, what I'm doing now is hyping up my own podcast, and something that is literally going to happen in 10 minutes, because on The Real Thing, we're all about instant gratification, and I can't wait for you to listen to this amazing episode that we put together. But first, how about some recommendations? So to start off with a podcast recommendation, I'm recommending This Podcast Will Kill You from Exactly Right Media. This podcast focuses on one disease, illness, syndrome, virus, one per episode, and it the history, the biology, and its current status is described by its hosts, Erin Armin Updike and Erin Welsh, who are two disease ecologist PhDs. I love this podcast it is so well researched the structure like i mentioned history biology and current status it's just so good it's so great to listen to because it's so well researched and the errands know exactly what they're talking about it's just so fantastic and it's a really great way to learn about all of these diseases that are in the world and maybe get an insight into it and it's just so fantastic because you basically learn how scared of certain diseases you should really be. They did a fantastic coverage of COVID-19 during the the heat of the pandemic, 
And the American government actually selected that season of the podcast to help spread real information to the American public, which is just so awesome. And I really can't recommend this podcast enough. It is very, very good. So that was This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right Media on just wherever you get uh, wherever you get your podcasts. They just began their sixth season and so far they've covered RSV and epilepsy. And I think that they're covering vitamin D deficiencies and, and a lot of more good stuff. So really check that out. That's one of my favorite podcasts. Now a little left field recommendation. I'm reading a book. Crazy. I'm reading The Sons of the Lambs uh, by Thomas Harris. I believe this is part of a three-part trilogy about the cannibal Hannibal Lecter. I'm really, really enjoying this book. The I, I, I'm not going to lie, I struggle with books, however much I hate to say it. My attention span is just getting worse as I as I get older, it's it's the Gen Z curse, for sure. But this book is is keeping me hooked, for sure. The pacing is great, the characters are cool. Um, yeah, specifically for a horror episode, there's a lot of gruesome moments. Um, really, really cool female lead character, Clarice Starling. Clarice? Um, yeah, and I mean, it's such an iconic thing. Uh, Signs of the Lambs, obviously, and but I've actually never seen the movie, so... It's all new to me, and I'm enjoying it for the first time, so definitely check it out. Film or the book, either way, but I guess that's uh, what I'm, I'm recommending there. It's uh, it's good. It's, a, it's, an, it's an exciting read, for sure. Now, lastly, for a movie recommendation, Bergen Film Club showed a Brian De Palma double bill a couple weeks ago, and I'm I am recommending one of those films, and I know that those in Bergen Film Club are going to think this is very controversial, but I am recommending Brian De Palma's 2002 classic, Femme Fatale. I thought that this movie was just so crazy, and it was kind of bad, but I just had no idea what was going to happen. The story was just so left field and it was kind of plot twist after plot twist after plot twist that I I couldn't help but enjoy it. It was kind of campy. It was exciting. There was some good action, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't understand why so many people hated on it at the time because I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. The only downside I, I would say to that film is that... There are large parts of the film which are in French, and there was no subtitles, so I feel like that might make it a little bit difficult if the if you don't speak French. But if you if you just want like a kind of sexy thriller crime Brian De Palma classic movie, then I really recommend Femme Fatale. I I have seen Carrie, which is one of his other films, and that's obviously such an iconic, amazing movie, and uh, Scarface and The Untouchables, but if you just want some fun, then I recommend Femme Fatale. And Antonio Banderas is in it, and this was the first role that I have ever seen him in as a real person. I've only ever seen him act in Shrek and Puss in Boots, so it was exciting to see him as a real person, so that's nice. Now for some Bergen Film Club 
updates, some news. We just had our Folk Horror Film Festival, which was a big success. It was very cool to have some people come out and see some spooky folk horror films. The one that really stood out the most to me was The Blood on Satan's Claw, the 1971 British supernatural horror film. I thought that that film, unironically, was actually really scary. <laughs> and not a lot of people found it scary, so I don't know what deep-seated trauma I have that I am not aware of that made it so scary, but it was definitely good. We also showed The Craft, which is going to be an episode on the podcast uh, in a couple episodes' time, so definitely keep an eye out for that. That is such a cool movie, and I'm really excited to get to talk about it. This week, we are showing Polytechnique, which is a Denis Villeneuve movie. Uh, which is a dramatization of the Montreal massacre in 1989. And after that, we are showing Loves of a Blonde, which is a 1965 Czech comedy drama movie following a girl who's desperate for love, who will do anything to get it. So if you're in Bergen, definitely come and check those out. Polytechnique is on Wednesday and Loves of a Blonde is on Sunday. Now... Let's just jump into the episode. Today, we are talking about Phil Tippett's 2021 movie, Mad God. So today we are talking about the 2021 film, Mad God. This film, in a word, visceral. It is definitely an interesting watch, and it's kind of difficult to know where to start when describing it. So I think that we have to go a little bit back, 30 years back to be precise, to what will eventually bring us to this film, Mad God. So the film is directed, written, and produced by Phil Tippett, who is a revolutionary special effects artist. He is known for his work on the Star Wars trilogy, Jurassic Park, Robocop, and basically any film that had any sort of CGI between 1985 and 2010. I would say those were sort of his main years. He worked on Piranha, he worked... He did the Wolves in the Twilight series, but obviously... He didn't do it alone. He founded Tippett Studio in 1984 alongside his wife, Jules Roman, who's the president of the company and serves as an executive producer for a lot of his work. It was a visual effects company specializing in CGI for films and TV. They worked on The Mandalorian, all of the Star Wars movies, uh, Robocop, which I think I mentioned, and Mad God. So like I said, we had to go 30 years into the past to begin with this process of Mad God, because it actually, the project begun in 1987. He began producing dozens of environments and hundreds of puppets for the projects, filling notebook after notebook with thousands of detailed sketches and storyboards. But due to the rise of his studio and his work on films like Jurassic Park, the project was eventually dropped. Decades after the success of Tippett Studio forced the production into stasis, a group of animators at the studio came upon these boxes and boxes full of these shelled props and puppets. Then a small group began volunteering their weekends to Mad God, 
and before long it had snowballed into a crew of more than 60 artists, most volunteering. A wildly successful Kickstarter campaign provided funding for the materials and the equipment, and this is how we came to have Mad God. In the upcoming conversation that I had with the guest, I include some quotes from Phil Tippett that sort of give a more of an insight into the process of making this film and the inner workings of Phil Tippett's brain. But basically, he was just cooking this idea in his brain all this time, even though it sort of got shelved and in his head it was kind of a thing that was ashamed to put to one side, but it was put to one side. He was still conceptually thinking of all the things that he wanted to put into the film. And what exactly did Phil Tippett put into this movie? He put a lot into it. Uh, he put a lot of blood, he put a lot of uh, boobs and balls, poop, piss, vomit, uh, people getting electrocuted and melted down and the that being eaten by someone else. It is a really intense movie to watch for sure. It has no real or traditional plot, but is more focused on the certain characters that we follow across the whole movie. So it's uh, more character-driven, focused on a style or an experience rather than being uh, narrative-driven. I would say that with watching this, you don't really need any more information than I've given you right now. It's good to just go in, relax as much as you can, and see this uh, hellish... Milton-esque journey that Phil Tippett takes you on. Ostensibly, it tells the story of a lone assassin's journey into a hellish underworld to detonate a bomb. It's told with a blend of stop-motion animation and surreal live-action elements. It uses minimal dialogue to tell its story and relies instead on these visceral mix of sight and sounds. It is kind of gross, but when you see the... If you can acknowledge the amount of work and precision that went into this movie, it is such a, f it's a feat of cinema, really. F Phil and his team have done an amazing job with this film, and if anything, it's just impressive to watch, honestly. Just out of pure respect for this man, showing the best of his skills to the max in what is Mad God. It was released on the streaming, horror streaming service, Shudder, and it was actually Shudder's biggest film premiere ever. The budget of this film was 150,000 US dollars and the box office made 325,000. So it went way and above its box office. So it's it's definitely not for everyone. I can, I can see that, but it's an experience for sure. And it's a movie that you won't forget. I think that at least everyone should see at least once. Now for the exciting part, I sat down with Bendik Vixness who is one of the board members at our very own Bergen Film Club. He is the applications manager, and he is horror-obsessed, so I couldn't think of anyone better to sit down with and talk Mad God with. One more thing before the interview gets started. We are a little bit of a work in progress here at The Real Thing, and me and Bendik had to share one microphone, so I'm sorry if, if the audio is a little strange. It isn't bad, but just uh, if you were wondering what's going on. Hi, Bendik. Hello, Joe. Nice to be here. 
thank you very much for being on this episode. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Okay, let's just get started. We're talking about Mad God. So, Bendik, put it simply, what do you like about this film? Well, what's not to like about it? If you if you're into practical effects um, and the craftsmanship that goes into um, making uh, practical effects, this is just a love letter to to that type of filmmaking. And it's you know it's directed by Phil Tippett, who was a master in special effects. He did. Robocop, he did uh, Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been in the game for a long time and he's been making this for a long time. Uh, off the top of my head, it's, uh, I can't remember how long he's been making it, but like 30 years, probably. Yeah, 30, years. 30 years in the making. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I hadn't heard about it until someone showed me a trailer last year when we were discussing putting it on the program for the um, film club. And it just looked uh, insane. And uh, when I finally did watch it, because we didn't put it on a program, but I, I managed to scurry it up through other means, and I watched it, and uh, I thought it was brilliant. And it is one of those films that's very light on story. Uh, there's uh, a lot going on visually, and I'm sure if you're one of those um, brainy uh, film watchers, you can analyze almost every scene and deduct some kind of meaning Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's mostly just a descent into madness or descent into hell. Like yeah. he just goes deeper. The main character, at least the one we follow at the start, he just goes deeper and deeper into depravity, deeper and deeper into this mysterious world fulfilled with strange creatures and um, crazy doctors. And uh, it just um, it is very much a film about a mood. It's a film that um, evokes a certain feeling in you, a feeling of dread. Um, but at the same time, you get, especially if you, you're into, like I said, practical effects, you get really um, smitten by by how much artistry on the screen. I mean, he handcrafted all these things. I mean, he had help, of course. He used uh, people to help him. He didn't make it all by himself, but it's just stunning how much love energy and patience has gone into creating um, the creatures on display. It's incredible. And it's, it's um, unfortunately, it's a dying art. I'm sure we'll talk about that too, how uh, that type of filmmaking is um, slowly dying, even though I do feel we have kind of resurgence when it comes to practical effects in movies. It's, there certainly isn't a, uh, as much of it as it was when Phil Tippett was at his heyday for instance um, but no I just I just love the film I couldn't tell you why <laughs> <laughs> and it's certainly it's a it's a long watch you know it's barely 90 minutes yeah but when I watched it again when we showed it in BFK I remember thinking man these are some long 90 minutes <laughs> yeah it definitely feels long at this point me and Ben Dick started to talk about what we thought drove Phil Tippett to make a movie like this This film has such striking, vulgar images that we thought that this inspiration must come from somewhere. Our researchers, Ingrid and Mamina, found that Phil Tippett is a self-described misanthropic person. Misanthropic meaning showing a dislike of other people and sociable, not liking the world. We then found a quote that I feel like really highlights 
what he thinks he is like as a person, but definitely what brought him to create these visuals that are in this film. Quote, I really don't think that there's much hope for mankind at all from what I have observed. There's no way that Mad God could not be some reflection of this era. I follow the news very avidly, and I don't think that there's any way that you cannot be affected by that. It enters into your worldview and it's like breathing air. There's nothing that you can do about it. There's a lot that I would like to not remember. But all that stuff gets relegated to the unconscious, and that is where it cooks. And so that was pretty much the process for Mad God. If you were to ask me what Mad God is about, I say that it's about scale, process, and time. That was kind of my canvas that I was working with for this film. End quote. That quote alone really gives a whole new perspective for the film, at least for me. The horror and the despair that you feel from watching these visuals of a world on fire where there's despair and tragedy all around. It's actually a personification for these feelings that Phil is having about society and the way that the world is moving forward today. Well, you can kind of feel his misanthropy and uh, dark worldview in the film. Like, um, not only does this look like a world that could be ours if uh, things went really to shit and uh, it took a few hundred years, but also the fact that every cute creature that shows up, and that's not many, there are only a handful of cute creatures, yeah. and they all get horribly killed <laughs> at some point in the film. So uh, it says something about how he is, I guess. And it's weird because he worked on Jurassic Park. Yeah. He's supposed to be a nice guy. Yeah. Just uh, mentioning Jurassic Park there. Uh, obviously, I would have mentioned before, but you just mentioned now that it took him like 30 years to make this film. But one of, th- one of the reasons why he sort of gave up the concept of it initially was when he was working on Jurassic Park, obviously there's like revolutionary CGI in that film. He at the time so i guess that was like 1980s uh 93 Jurassic yeah, park came out 93 in um and he said that he was sort of realizing that there's not like a place for stop motion anymore uh when whilst he was doing this like revolutionary work which i guess i mean it's good for him that he got to work on Jurassic park but also sad that he felt like he had to give up his vision in a way that stop motion was a was a dying art mm. They started out with stop motion, I think. I'm kind of speaking from memory now, from um, yeah, <laughs> from a making of Jurassic Park documentary I watched. Mm-hmm. But they did start out with stop motion as um, before they realized that uh, okay, no, this looks too fake. We have to go for computer. And I think Jurassic Park is like the perfect example of how CGI and practical effects can be men welded together in a kind of fusion where it works i think those effects still holds up and it certainly wouldn't have looked as good if they used stop motion it just wouldn't Uh, because you know you can love stop motion but um it has that kind of fake quality to it i actually have a very good quote from film critic roger ebert who i think you like i don't know i like him yeah, uh, he said, computer graphics look real but feel fake, and stop motion looks fake but feels real. Mm. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine Mad God with CGI? Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't. It wouldn't have had the impact at all. It would just be some weird animation movie. It wouldn't have uh, made an impact. The whole reason that movie works is 
the practical effects and the stop motion. Because yeah. like Roger Hibbert said, the stop motion, it means the effect is actually there. Mm-hmm. It's not just a green ball on a broom that someone is shoving in front of the face of the actor so he'll have something to look at. It's actually a thing that yeah. they made, uh, which will always look better than CGI. I don't care if it's Avatar, the new <laughs> Avatar, which had great pr- uh, CGI. Uh-huh. It still is not as good, in my opinion, as the shark in Jaws, for instance. The one thing I don't like about the film is when the humans show up. Okay. That takes me out of the film when we have actors. It just it doesn't work as well for me. And I think that whenever the... there, Fortunately, there's not that many of those scenes. But whenever they happen, I feel like, oh, let's get back to the right. stop motion and the, and the dolls. It's much cooler. As the film goes on, I feel like the large scaleness of it sort of diminishes. But I think that is probably directly proportional to his mental psyche. So it was probably easier to have human people in the film at that point uh, than laboriously spending hours and hours and hours working on something that you are going to hate. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, can you imagine working in this thing on and off for 30 years? It's... Yeah. It's... Uh, it, there's a level of dedication there that I don't... Uh, that I can't fathom. It's definitely something within this art form that I feel like a lot of people say that people are dedicated to it, but in a way I feel like it's obsession. It is. Yeah, it's obsession, but it it's obsession in a good kind of way. It's uh, <laughs> the one the obsession that creates cool art. Yeah, and um, like you were mentioning, um, Paranorman and and Coraline and and these things, they are coming back. Like we just uh, Guillermo del Toro just released his Pinocchio movie, That's which right. is also done purely practical. It seems like we're coming back around. Mm-hmm. Like there's always Hollywood is going to go crazy with its CGI for a while. After Jurassic Park, there was a period where, especially Spielberg and his uh, friends, they were like obsessed with CGI. They thought everything would be better with CGI. I mean, George Lucas famously maligned, uh, he killed his uh, Star Wars movies by going back and adding all those stupid effects. Um, sure. Didn't make them look cooler, it, but he thought so. Mm-hmm. And um, for a while, there was a big uh, over-reliance on CGI. And now, luckily, we're, we there seemed to be some sort of a turn. Uh, even in the new Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World Dominion, which was a pretty lousy film, but there was a lot more animatronic and... Um, practical effects work in that film than in the first Jurassic World. So while discussing what are great examples of practical effects, we took a slight detour to talk about the work of Rob Bettine in John Carpenter's 1982 The Thing. Rob Bettine is an American special makeup effects creator. He's best known for his work in Basic Instinct, The Fog, The Thing, Seven, Fight Club, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He is hugely respected in his field of prosthetic makeup, even being described in 2013 as a special effects genius. He's been nominated for an Oscar, and he won a Special Achievement Academy Award in 1991 for his work. However, what we were talking about here is his work on The Thing related to this idea of obsessive work within practical effects. It is said that whilst working on The Thing, He worked seven days a week, including late nights, for one year and five weeks straight, producing every single creature effect, with the exception of a dog. According to a making of documentary, the then 22-year-old's schedule was so punishing, and his attention to detail was so obsessive, 
that after the filming was finished, he was hospitalized with exhaustion and pneumonia. It's also interesting to note that his work was criticized for being too gruesome and distracting for the themes of the film. Although ultimately, they said that his work elevated the film, which it absolutely does. But it was. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry for Rob Bottian, but I mean, the thing is like held up as the prime example on like a masterpiece of practical effects. I mean, you look at that movie today. I mean, I won't, I won't go so far into hyperbole and say that you could sit anyone down and show them that film and they would be impressed because people, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are people out there who would say that it looks fake. But it doesn't necessarily have to look real. It just needs to look good. And those effects, they look fantastic. And I'd argue they look real. But... Um, the thing is, uh, the thing is, the class example on on how well um, practical effects can elevate a movie. And Rob Bottin's work was insane. And to think, you know, the irony that when they finally decided to make a sequel years later, which was no, it was supposed to be a prequel. Okay. It was supposed to take place on the Norwegian base, and they really, I, I don't remember when it came out. Could have been around twenty eleven. Um, the thing, uh, and. They had built all these practical effects because there was a big, not a big backlash, but there was a backlash from fans when they were remaking it mm-hmm. that, oh, you're not going to use practical effects. You're going to go the way of CGI. And they said, no, 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 we're making practical effects. We're going to do this the proper way. And then the studio saw the practical effects. They, they ordered them to, no, 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 paint over it with CGI. So all the physical effects that they had created, they kind of just jettisoned. Hmm. And then they painted over it with CGI and it looks awful. So you look at two movies that are, oh, my math is not good, but like 30 years apart. And the effects in The Thing from 1982 are a thousand times better than any of the crap in the new one. So here is where we get into the real wet, chunky, bloody meat of the episode. I wanted to hear Bendix's opinion on the use of gore in horror films. Whether it is, in fact, a service to the story that utilizing these blood, guts, body trauma, special effects, practical effects to disfigure body parts should be part and parcel of any horror film. If someone dies, blood will be spilled. Or whether it just falls into this torture porn category where it serves no purpose and it's just gratuitous bloody murder. That is just for the enjoyment of sick sickos. Well, it kind of depends on which, um, what type of impact you want it to have, but it certainly has an impact on the audience either way. Um, it can violence in cinema can be multiple things. It can be fun. It can be the fun, cathartic violence of, um, you know, of the, some something like um, a Tarantino movie like Django Unchained or, or any of his, his movies, you have that kind of fun, over-the-top, gory violence. Or indeed in a slasher movie. I mean, you watch a slasher movie for the creative kills. You know, The Burning um, has that famous raft sequence where the killer chops up a bunch of uh, students in a boat, okay. and it's just insane. Uh, blood flying everywhere, fingers, uh, body parts. Um and that can be fun. You watch these things, you know, some people might call you sick for thinking that's fun, but it's supposed to be fun. That's the reason you go to to these slasher movies. But yeah. violence can also 
function as um, something to horrify you, to disturb you, uh, like the ending to Taxi Driver, for instance, where <clears throat> Scorsese is quoted as saying, like, he wanted you to kind of feel for Travis um, Bickle, Robert De Niro's character, and he, he wanted you to root for him to go on this rampage to save Jodie Foster's character, but then when he actually does it, that's when you kind of you're he wants you to kind of stop and and as you see the carnage and the bloodbath you're gonna kind of stop and think that oh shit i did not want this this is horrifying but either way gore has a function to elicit a response from you it doesn't matter which context fun or horrifying the important thing is thing is that it actually gives a reaction in you and i think cgi gore doesn't even come close to give you that reaction because it looks so fake and these days a lot of movies use fake like cgi blood and i know it's nitpicky and probably people are going to hear and think oh what a freak bendik is why does he care <laughs> about the blood squirting in the scenes if it looked fake or not but it truly takes me out of the film and even you know i mentioned taxi driver martin scorsese used to be an expert at movie violence mm-hmm. Uh, but he has been become lazy. He just wants to use uh, CGI blood in his movies these days. I mean, The Irishman. I like The Irishman, but it's full of horrible CGI blood and horrible aging, uh, de-aging, but that's another thing. And if you're making an action movie, it's easy to just decide that, okay, we'll add the blood in later, in post, in post-production. Because if you decide to go for PG-13, you can just simply don't put it in. Or you can put in minimal amounts. Um, and it's easier, like, um, for I'm using Scorsese again, but, like, he likes to do these long takes. And in The Irishman, there's certainly a lot of long takes where characters walk and talk, and then all of a sudden one of them gets gunned down. It's all of, it's obviously a lot easier to do that with CGI blood. Yeah. Because you don't have to use squibs, you don't have to use practical effects, you can do it all in one take and then just add it in. So I understand why directors do it. But it looks... Um, I, it doesn't look good. It just, it's so, so visceral cinema. And when you watch a slasher movie, you want that response. You want, uh, the, the killing is at like the end of a long, a long scene where they kind of been building up to it. So you want the release or the climax of the scene to be good. And you don't get there with practical, with CGI, I don't think. Yeah, okay. Uh, and even in other movies, like even when the violence is supposed to hit you hard, and it's supposed to make you feel bad. If Taxi Driver, the ending to Taxi Driver, was full of CGI blood, it would look pretty bad. Um, if uh, Saving Private Ryan was full of just CGI, um, it wouldn't look as good. It wouldn't feel as real, you know. And even even Gaspar in a way, in Irreversible, you know, which is a horrible, horrifying film. It's a great film, but it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene at the start where. Um, Vincent Cassell's character is uh, beating to death a guy with a um, fire extinguisher. And I think that's done in like a combination of practical effects and then CGI because it starts at practical effects Uh and then it gradually slides over into CGI. And once it slides, it's one of the most nasty visuals I've ever seen. It horrified me. It like shook me to my core. I think, oh, wow, this is nasty. I don't want to see this. 
But then it went too far and it went into CGI territory right at the end and it just took me out of it again. It's, ah, oh, okay, yeah, it's CGI. It doesn't feel real anymore. Why should I feel bad about this? Well, I was going to just follow up with what you were saying with that, that like, I feel like the point of people watching these films is that they want some sort of visceral reaction. Mm. And I wanted to just briefly, just before we finish, get into the torture porn debate because that's something that I think that a lot of uh maybe non-horror fans can kind of have a a viewpoint because it definitely is a thing that there are just these films that are just people dying in elaborate creative ways like the saw what what the saw franchise turned into and final destination for example Mm. um but i just wanted to read you this quote from eli roth from uh hostel fame yeah 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 i really like those films i have to say um the third one is a flop but the second one <laughs> the second one was great i i'm just gonna put it out there i so, want to watch the second one the, i've watched the first one again rewatched the first one and it's not that bad yeah I, I remembered it as worse than it was so he was asked are torture porn films popular because audiences have become more sadistic and he said quote the truth of the matter is at times of terror people want to be terrified but in a safe environment with all the things going on in the world, people want to scream. You want to... Uh, I mean, there was for, for a while I was also into the Saw movies, even though I do, do think that they derailed towards uh, the latter half. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, we're not kidding anybody. We, we went to Saw to watch as gory murders as possible. Yeah. You want that reaction. You want to feel like, oh, this looks painful. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a response. It's cinema reaching out of uh, the screen and grabbing you and making you feel something and it's uh, it's fun that's cinema uh, cinema violence has a unique um, ability to do that i think and it, if if done well it can be really good and um but you know there is something to be said like for torture porn it's not really uh, my favorite of, of horror genres it depends on how it how it's done, but there was a while where there was like a big wave of torture porn, and then yeah. uh, then um, there was a subgenre of horror in in France that grew out, grew um, out in like the mid two thousands called French. It was dubbed New French Extremity, which was a bunch of French horror films okay. where they just took it really far for some reason and produced some truly graphic horror movies i didn't think it had they had it in them i mean i at that time when those movies were coming out i watched a lot of like um japanese horror like audition and stuff and i knew that those guys knew how to push the envelope Mm -hmm. i did not think the french were able to but man they did one of the one of the movies that came out of this period was a movie called martyrs uh directed by pascal logier i think his name is and this movie it is a horror movie it is about a girl fleeing from captivity. She's been ca- captured for a long time. She goes back to take revenge on the uh, people who captured her. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil it any more than that. But the first half is ba- a, a more or less a basic graphic horror film. Then the second half goes into more torture porn territory. But what it almost functions at is a, is a critique of torture porn. It's like the director wants to kind of punish the viewer and say, oh, you wanted torture, did you? You wanted suffering? You like to go to cinema for suffering? 
here you go and then the last act there is so much abuse and so much depravity that you as a viewer feel like you are going through the same thing and it's one of the few movies that I can't sit through more than I've seen it a few times um, but it is truly one of those experiences that's so exhausting that at the end you feel like you've been going through the same thing as the um, as the character in the scene mm. you just want it to be over you want just oh please don't show me any more violence I can't handle anymore wow. I think that there's just like a morbid fascination that I feel like every person has it's I mean it's sort of evolved now with the whole true crime thing mm. is that you know you may not be watching someone be chopped into a million tiny pieces but you're listening to someone describe that happen so (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that it I don't think that it stems too far from what that is it's just like a fascination with seeing people die I think (laughs) that we all kind of want to see but we don't want to see and we like to feel uh, excited we like to get that rush of endorphins and um, movie violence can certainly do that I mean it, it can be um, it can be so um, you know not not just in slasher movies but in in, in any type of uh, like revenge movie like um, there's a movie called Rolling Thunder which I'm sure not many people have seen um, written by Paul Schrader came out in the 70s uh, and you know that whole film is just you know the main character at the start he gets his um, his family is killed and he he gets his hand chopped off in a in a grinder in a kitchen grinder and uh, he's a vietnam vet and then at the end he wants to take revenge the whole movie is just a build up to that spectacular bloody climax at the end and when that happens you ju- you, you you almost cheer in your seats and that's true for almost any of these revenge movies not a- all people like it but when a movie kind of just builds and builds and builds and then releases all the tension in a bloody carnage of a climax it's so much fun it makes you feel so alive you know i want to make even though <laughs> this movie certainly not all people like this one but once upon a time in hollywood the end when brad pitt kills all those uh, manson yeah people it's it made me cheer in my seat i was just yeah go and it, i laughed i had so much fun and i went back the next day with my friends to watch it again wow. and i was so much looking forward to that scene because it just yeah, I don't know. It elicits something in me. I don't want to go out and hurt people in real life, but I love watching it in cinema. Yeah. That sort of overjoyed feeling is how I felt at the end of Midsommar. Ah, yes. Yeah, I was so... And I felt like something is real wrong with me. <laughs> when the way that I was smiling at the end of that film <laughs> while my friends were sitting there like horrified, but I was like, good for her. I would do the same. But did you watch the director's cut or did you watch the um, the theatrical cut the theatrical cut yeah really yeah because I was a little bit more ambivalent in the theatrical cut I was like oh really oh wow okay we're going the route of the wicker man okay yeah Um, except not as horrifying as the wicker man but um, still I was like a bit more ambivalent and more like oh that's kind of overkill I'm not sure he deserves that but in the director's cut it's made much more clear that the the person we're talking about is an asshole yeah, and kind of deserve what uh, happens. 
I guess I didn't need as much convincing. <laughs> but you did, uh, you did. Since we're talking about movie violence, kind of giving you feel, making you feel giddy. I remember you told me that you loved Terrifier too. I did love Terrifier too. And Terrifier too is full of depraved violence, but it also the director of that film is a practical effects creator, yeah. and he made the effects. And that is such a great example of good practical effects. It is. Yeah. And the kills are so cool. Mm -hmm. It's a two and a half hour film, but and the acting is not that great, except for the one, the guy who plays the clown. Yeah, he's great. But man, every single time someone was killed in that movie, I was just yes, <laughs> give it to me, show me what you got. And he yeah. always just pushes it further and further mm -hmm. into. He pushes it so far that it becomes funny. Uh, but it's it's so cool, and that's an exa a recent example on um, how uh, movie violence can make you feel. And um, another example, but then we have to kind of go back a few years. Is of course Peter Jackson's famous uh, movie Brain Dead, also known as Dead Alive, mm -hmm. which has so much gore in it that. You don't know how, not only gore, but just disgusting things. Like it, it's a properly disgusting movie, and you could very well like. I think I showed it to my brother once, and he almost puked. <laughs> <laughs> but it is supposed to be funny, and it is one of those movies that kind of make you feel queasy in a good way. Yeah. With it, and it's all practical, of course. It is. Peter Jackson was a special effects wizard, and the effects on that film is just incredible. And it's so. It has that famous scene where he chops up zombies with a um, lawnmower, which has kind of been shown over and over again. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's a good example of uh, another example on how feelings that supposed to make you feel kind of icky because Terrifier 2 is also, it's the violence is gruesome. It is. And people could easily watch that and just feel, Ugh. yeah. And uh, queasy, but it's in a good way. Yeah. You you're disgusted in a good way <laughs> and that is fun yeah thank you very much for talking to me about some gross stuff i wouldn't want to talk to anyone else about disgusting horror stuff you are definitely a good authority on on that i think thank you for uh, thank you for letting me talk about uh, disgusting horror because this has been the only time where i've been allowed to talk uninterrupted about movie gore without have people uh, looking at me like I'm some sort of escaped lunatic. Well, that's that. Another excellent episode. Thank you again to Bendik for joining to talk about some super gross, gory stuff and just give great insight into something I love talking about and I don't get to talk about enough, which is horror. Thank you for listening i hope that you have enjoyed this episode uh next week we are talking about the documentary tickled so there's gonna be some uncomfortableness for sure but we're gonna get a little bit true crimey a little bit gross again so definitely check that out but this has been the real thing thank you so much for listening catch you next time goodbye This has been a Bergen Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joe Lawrence. 
Our researchers are NK Shilpkai Ben and Mamina Nasmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.